Y'all, did you hear that the canine conservationist team is heading to Kenya? We're donating our time to support the dog handler teams at Action for Cheetahs in Kenya and need your help. We're hosting a conservation dog trivia night to fundraise for this trip on March 3rd at 7 o'clock Eastern time, which is 5 o'clock Mountain. We've got some exciting guests and topics ranging from big cat conservation to the history of working dogs. And we're asking for a $25 donation per person with teams of up to six. You can join us at the link in the show notes. While Action for Cheetahs has two highly trained detection dogs, they're in the process of training a new round of handlers. And we are offering six weeks each of mentoring, problem solving, and training advice. And all three of us are super excited. That said, Action for Cheetahs is operating on a really tight budget and cannot pay enough to even cover cover the costs of our student loans during our travel for all three handlers, myself included. You can support us by donating directly on the website or by joining our trivia night on Thursday, March 3rd at 5 o'clock Eastern. See you there. Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I am rejoined by Ursa Acri. <laughs> and we are circling back to the topic of behaviorally challenging dogs in the conservation detection dog world. You all hopefully remember Ursa from the Canine Conversations podcast, where she brought endless expertise on dog behavior thanks to her years of working in shelter behavior and private practice as a trainer. Ursa is now employed with Behavior Vets Colorado, where she manages the Colorado behavior team and sees private clients. Welcome back to the podcast, Ursa. Thank you. I'm so excited to be back. We got the band back together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're just missing Marissa, which I, and I think Marissa would have been a great addition to this episode as well, but yeah, um, scheduling. <laughs> um, so as um, trainer behavior consultants, Ursa and I both specialized, um, I specialized past tense and Ursa continues to work with dogs with more serious behavior issues. So we're not training obedience, we're not generally working on puppy potty training, those sorts of things. Ursa and I both hold the title of Certified Dog Behavior Consultant with the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants. And that requires over 500 hours of hands-on work to pass the uh to pass the test to get into this this club <laughs> um there are essays there are exams there are case studies and more and i'm really excited for ursa and i to kind of share our thoughts and build on what the team at rogue detection said in the last episode from their experience working with difficult dogs um and yeah i think it's going to be uh just looking at the same question of why do dogs improve once they get into these jobs how can we help them improve more how do we support these behaviorally challenging dogs going forward um from the other side of the coin from more the trainer side of things so ursa why don't we start out with just talking a little bit about the environment that may cause some of these behavior problems, which of course environment is only part of where behavior problems come from. They can also be genetic um, or early life socialization. But when we're seeing behavior issues in the home or in the shelter, what are some of the factors that can make that worse? Um, well, I think, you know, the shelter, there's a lot going on there that we could kind of pick apart and discuss. Um, you know, starting with the fact that most dogs coming into the shelter have probably never been in an environment about or in an environment like that before. 
and it's a big change from what they're used to um and usually a really sudden change <laughs> um <laughs> yeah there's no like easing into the shelter there's no halfway in the shelter <laughs> yeah and even like when it when someone rehomes a dog to another home mm-hmm. usually it's sort of a similar context you know it's it's a house with a yard maybe or people it's, a, it's the same lifestyle but the shelter is just so radically different that it's really stressful for a dog to go from living in someone's home to living in a shelter um it's loud it's stinky it's um you know devoid of a lot of enrichment unfortunately and i support shelters you know a hundred percent um but the fact of the matter is that most shelters don't have the resources to provide like a calm enriching environment for every animal that comes into their care so we're looking at you know an animal that's taken from a place that's familiar and put into a place that is um, at once not stimulating in the right ways, but also overstimulating in a lot of really not good ways. (laughs) Um, And it's stressful. And especially for dogs that tend to get overstimulated to begin with, it can just be hell on their nervous system. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that constant sensory input from every angle and nowhere to go with it really so no outlet for it Mm -hmm. um so i would say those are kind of the main things that can can trigger sort of this cascade of behavior issues in the shelter um and you know in homes it can be really similar it can be you know if there's a lot going on that is stimulating the dog but the dog doesn't have a lot of appropriate outlets for that it causes issues and that's where we get dogs that like destroy the furniture or bark all day or panic when they're left alone or you know not that that's the one cause of all of these behavior issues but it certainly can contribute and you know one thing that i want to that i always mention when i talk about this is that you know there is this sort of conventional wisdom um thanks to you know tv trainers about how like oh well, under exercised dogs mm. are the dogs with behavior issues and so the cure is to just exercise the hell out of them and then they won't have any energy left or you know it'll whatever like i don't the reasoning is very um labyrinthine <laughs> and so um and and that's not true i don't i can't think of any example in 20 years, over 20 years of a dog with a severe behavior issue where it was fixed with exercise. Yeah. And um, an under-exercised dog is likely to, that is likely to contribute to behavior issues. So it's a factor, but it's not a magic bullet. And I think that that is um, a, a similar thread between Uh, you know some homes and being in the shelter where the dog just doesn't get enough physical and mental stimulation or enrichment in the right ways yeah it sounds like if we were to kind of channel our inner kim brophy for a second it's this it's a mismatch between the genetics and the environment yes you know which are two of the four legs that she talks about see our episode with kim brophy Mm -hmm. and then also channeling our inner sarah strumming (laughs) talking about like the exercise and the enrichment as really big contributing factors Uh, you know because again i think what we see when you're in a home and you're considering giving up a dog or you're in a shelter and you're looking at a dog and you say oh my god this dog just needs a job it seems like it's generally a really big mismatch in kind of the energy levels the instinctive needs of that dog and the environment that it's currently in again whether it's the shelter or the home um one of the things that i really like about the field of conservation detection dog is that some behaviorally challenging dogs might have a future in this field that they couldn't have in other fields. So the big example would potentially be like a dog who's 
not socially savvy with humans. And that could range from being fearful to being full on reactive, potentially even being aggressive with unknown humans. That dog may be able to go out and do like the wind farm work that I was doing this last winter or this last summer. Mm-hmm. Probably could have done that. And actually both of the dogs um, that I was working um the dog teams that I was working alongside, those dogs required pretty careful introductions to humans, and it took a, a couple um, a couple tries with both of those dogs to get to the point where we were we were all comfortable with each other. So, is, is there anything you want to add on that? That was just a point that I felt the need to make. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it has so much to do with context, right? So, what's the the context in which the problem behavior occurs? And are those environmental or contextual cues, are those, you know, antecedent arrangements going to be present in the field? And so just like you said, so dog that's a little, and I know lots, I know and work with a lot of dogs that are really um, worried about people coming into their homes that they don't know. And that's not an arrangement that's going to be present in the field. Um, you know, there there may be some exceptions to that, like does does the dog also um, are they sensitive to people approaching them if they're in a car and are they going to be in a car in the field waiting to get out and do their job and is somebody you know we could come up with examples where the same the, the context might translate but I think by and large it's such a unique environment that you're working in you know and that the the dogs are working in that a lot of the problems we see crop up in either the shelter or in homes and you know dogs that live in neighborhoods they're just not there so the triggers aren't there um, for for the dog to be able to ex- or for the dog to need to express the behaviors that they're expressing that are a problem yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. You know, it's it's this one of the things that we see is whether it's intentional management or not, there's a huge reduction in a lot of our kind of typical triggers that are behavior problems for dogs. And we keep seeing behavior problems as if there's like a, <laughs> a DSM. <laughs> yeah, well, and even uh, not even just a DSM, but like a uh, as if there's a one size fits all because for you know behavior problems could range from jumping up and knocking over the toddler Mm -hmm. which is just like you know my dog niffler um would absolutely do that um i would not say he's a dog quote unquote with issues um and that could range all the way up to you know dogs that i've worked with in this field have had everything from noise phobias to handling sensitivities dog dog reactivity or even aggression towards other dogs reactivity towards cars stranger danger separation anxiety house soiling just rude pushy behavior mm-hmm. blah 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 and you know the dogs the, the first half of that list you know the dog dog aggression the car reactivity stranger danger those dogs probably wouldn't succeed in most kind of more urban canine fields if you've got a dog who requires really slow careful introductions to humans that dog could not be a first responder to an earthquake mm-hmm. um so i think that's one of the first things that i like kind of talking about with this field in particular again is that it's a little unique i think again I, I assume you ran into this as well in the shelter where there were times back when I worked at Denver Dumb Friends League, there were dogs that I was like, God, this dog would do so well at a job, but he's nervous with humans or he's a dick with other dogs or whatever it is. Um, and unless you can get that dog in with a conservation dog feel uh, person, there's just not... it. it, it it reduces the number of jobs that are available to that dog, the number of homes, even more so. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you also have to think about like if you're considering a dog as a candidate for some sort of um, you know job, search and rescue, or detection work, or whatever. Um, is are the behavior issues? It, would a behavior issue be something you would want to try to resolve beforehand, if it's not something that um, sort of comes out in the wash over the course of you know working with the dog on the specific job? So, for example, like if the issue is the dog is just understimulated and needs something to do and you take them to Nebraska and they run, you know, 300,000 miles on a wind farm every day, (laughs) that's probably going to take care of that. You know, again, overstim, that's a label. Mm -hmm. And so often it leads to dogs that express behaviors that are due to boredom. So, you know, like barking, pacing, um, stereotypies, things like that. Um, And so again, sometimes just having the job meets those needs, but if they don't, if it doesn't, like taking a dog to a wind farm in Nebraska and having them run 300,000 miles a day will probably not resolve their fear of strangers. Mm-hmm. And so is it something that you want to address first and try to resolve before you put the dog in the field? And then even when you do that, you know, as you know, we always say like aggressive behavior is never fixed. Like it's right. not because it's not, it's not broken. It's, it's a normal response to a dog feeling threatened. And so what we do is we push the threshold for, for where the dog feels the need to use that behavior. So instead of saying like, oh, we've cured this dog of aggression, we would say like, okay, all the situations in which this, which this behavior was triggered before, it's no longer triggered because the dog mm-hmm. feels differently. And they have other behaviors that they rely on to negotiate those situations. And so when you put a dog in the field, you can say like, okay, well, these situations that were present before no longer trigger the behavior. Um, but does that mean that it's never going to be triggered again? So even if you take a dog that's worried about people, you work with them and they um, you know, can meet a variety of people and be affiliative or not you know, display aggressive behavior, are you going to put them in a situation with a lot of different people where it's stressful, where people are going to be, you know, acting, uh, you know, oddly because they're hurt and frustrated and scared and stressed mm-hmm. and whatever? Like, there's always a risk that, you know, an old aggressive behavior could be triggered. So those are considerations, you know, the the fact that there may be things that you could work on, but is that going to be, um, is that going to carry over into these really weird contexts that a dog who has not had a job like that probably has never been in before? Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, as we've talked about before on this show, like there's, there's so much variety in the conservation dog field as well. You know, there's not just variety in the problems that a dog may be exhibiting. And I know we keep using these, these, (laughs) these labels of problems and issues and challenges and difficulties. And like, uh, you know, there, it's all just behavior, but we're going to go with language because this is a podcast. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And hopefully y'all know what we need, we mean, and nobody's getting offended by us calling your reactive dog difficult. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Uh, You know, like when Barley and I, we spent several days doing back-to-back demos at uh, the California Science Center back when I was at Working Dogs for Conservation. A big part of the reason that Barley and I did that was because he was one of the few dogs within the organization at Working Dogs for Conservation who could do that. Um, And I was one of the few handlers who was extroverted enough that I wanted to do that, which is part of why I worked with them. So, you know, again, there there are going to be different contexts. If if you as a handler only have the one dog and that dog is reactive towards other dogs or something, that may just limit a couple of the sorts of jobs you can take or the sorts of outreach events you can do. But generally speaking, they're probably going to be able to 
handle this. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I really see is that a lot of the organizations, not all, but um, a lot of the organizations, and I, I think Rogue Detection talked about this in our last episode, this is pretty much what they do. They select for nothing but drive. They just look for the, the dogs that have the drive to work for their ball, and then they manage and deal with the rest. They deal with whatever comes from that. And I know Working Dogs for Conservation did something similar. One of the things that Working Dogs for Conservation was running into while I was there um, was the unfortunate fact, though, that you can only do that for so many dogs for so long mm -hmm. before you start running into a situation where, okay, each handler can only manage so many dogs with so many different triggers before it's just not sustainable for the handler and their household um, to really handle that. So that's where potentially we may have to start looking for dogs that have more stable overall temperaments or, you know, again, especially if you've got a handler who already has two dogs and one dog is a little bit tricky, you may, you know, for that third dog, you might not be able to get away with just looking at drive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because those things stack up. So again, you know, just like you said, if you're a handler that has multiple dogs and they all have dog issues, <laughs> and they, you know, they all lack social skills or they all have resource guarding concerns or whatever, that becomes very quickly becomes this exponentially bigger issue than just one dog with those things that doesn't encounter other dogs in the field. But, um, you know, I agree. My experience with this is, you know, very limited, but um, in terms of like the, the um, working dog side, although I am trying to get into search and rescue, but um, when I was the behavior manager at the Kentucky Humane Society uh, in the early 2000s, uh, mid 2000s, um, I had uh, sort of a working relationship with a retired detective in the area who would, if I, and again, you know, the labels, if I had a dog that I thought was overstim or, mm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because like in the shelter, it's, shelter people will know what we're talking about when we say like kennel crazy or overstim, mm -hmm. although those are labels, they can be convenient to sometimes quickly describe a constellation of behaviors like incessant barking or um, frantic uh, social interactions with people or um, environment surfing, hyperarousal, hypervigilance, etc. Mm -hmm. And so dogs that exhibited those characteristics, I would reach out to this guy and he would come test them for drive. And that was exactly what he did. He would hold their collar. We had to go out to the side yard of the shelter that was like overgrown with grass on one end. And he'd hold the dog's collar and he'd throw the ball into the deep grass. And if the dog stopped looking for the ball before they found it, it wasn't a candidate. And that was his criteria. That and like, you know, I guess on the surface, he had to be able to handle the dog closely enough mm -hmm. to restrain it to throw the ball. So, but I, you know, I don't, I don't think I ever, like if I came across a dog that was severely people aggressive, that wouldn't have been considered a candidate anyway. Right. So, um, so, but that was the one thing that he was looking for. Does the dog give up? And if they gave up, they weren't a, the good, a good candidate. Um, he was doing like detection dog work, um, more like drug and bomb sniffing type mm -hmm. stuff. Not, um, not so much the conservation ecological data. Um, but yeah, so it was a very one, a very um, one dimensional <laughs> selection criteria. Um, and honestly, uh, I don't know what the outcome of the dogs that he took with him was. Um, so I don't know if they manifested other issues once they started um, working with him on detection work. 
Um, but I do know, like I said, that was the main thing. That was the important mm-hmm. thing for him. And I think, you know, it makes sense from the, the point of view that if that's what you need the dog to do, obviously that's going to be the rule out, the first rule out, right? So if the dog can't do the core part of the job, then you don't need to screen for the other stuff because it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's right? a great point. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Because, yeah, like if the dog doesn't have the chutzpah to do the work, it doesn't matter if I can't trim their toenails. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't matter if I'm going to have to do pretty serious management to reduce car reactivity because the dog's not going home with me yeah, if the dog they, can't do the job. They're picking the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's actually a good point that I don't know if I had considered previously as far as from the shelter end of things, so from the supply end, the dogs that are potentially, you know, that you're emailing a conservation dog organization about, and so therefore the only dogs that these conservation dog organizations are seeing are dogs that someone has invested enough in and is fighting for this dog and is trying to get it out the door, they're probably some amount of like a gray zone dog Mm -hmm. for adoption criteria because otherwise they probably would have gone out into another home. But they're not dogs that are a clear no-go for the shelter's adoption criteria. And of course, adoption criteria varies wildly (laughs) from shelter to shelter. Um, But, you know, in theory, if, if as a conservation dog handler, you're getting an email about a dog, that means that that dog is an adoption candidate, which probably means you're not seeing emails about dogs that have the most serious issues. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Like, and I had never considered that before, actually, mm-hmm. that when I think about some of the toughest cases I worked with back at the shelter, you know, those those really, those big heartbreakers mm-hmm. that didn't go well, I don't think we ever emailed any working dog organizations because they weren't a candidate anyway because they were that dangerous or that difficult. Yeah, it's almost like that's the first selection criteria, right? Yeah, so if, if the shelter will let them out. Is this, yeah, is like, what's the disposition going to be? Like, is this dog okay to put out in the community in some way, whether it's directly mm-hmm. to an adopter, to a rescue, to a working dog org. So that's almost like the first yes, no mm-hmm. of, you know, that question. And then the next question would be, well, does the dog have have the right temperament to do the job? Yeah. So yeah, I think you're right on that. It, there's, there's that initial question of like, are we going to put this dog in the world in any capacity? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, again, that's going to vary quite a bit from shelter to shelter as far as what they deem. So I'm not saying that as a conservation dog handler, you've never seen an email from a, from a shelter <laughs> where in another shelter that dog would not be an adoption candidate, because I'm sure you have. <laughs> um, because again, shelters have really wildly different um, criteria. And, you know, I think we've, we've, we've touched on this a little bit, but a lot of these behavior issues do stem from some unmet exercise or enrichment needs that are going to be satiated by these, this job. Um, but that doesn't necessarily apply to things like our fear, our phobias, our anxieties, our aggression. Um, those things might diminish a little bit because of increased behavioral wellness and management and change environment. And we can, let's talk about those three things. But I think rather than that coming from this like targeted behavior modification that you and I have done so much of, it's actually coming more from like an overall reduction in stress, that like nervous system actually getting time to 
relaxing. We haven't fixed the anxiety. We haven't fixed the aggression. We haven't treated the phobia. However, because the dog is just overall less stressed out and more satiated, those behaviors may diminish. So why don't, I mean, talk about that and then let's talk about the behavior wellness management environment side of things even more. Yeah, I mean, I think of it from like a humane hierarchy point of view. So, you know, that's how I approach the cases that I work with um, in the the private sector. And um, that is to say, so it's what I'm referring to is Susan Friedman's humane hierarchy, which is really similar to like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs in people. And it's essentially looking at, okay, what is what is the if you imagine it as like a, a triangle right the widest part at the bottom those are the foundational needs that have to be met for any organism right so um you know food water physical health etc um and that's what we're gonna look at always look at first because if those needs aren't met you can't build on it right Mm -hmm. like you can't work with a dog that's not getting proper nutrition you can't work with a dog that has an unmanaged disease or you can but not likely to be successful (laughs) um (laughs) and so we're gonna look at those first and i i kind of think that folds really heavily into what we're talking about because dogs in shelters are not generally having And again, no fault of the shelter, just by the nature of, you know, the situation, they're not generally having their like emotional and physical needs met Mm -hmm. um, from an enrichment or an exercise standpoint. And so, you know, I know you said that um, you mentioned something about like, well, we focus more on the BMOD part, but I would say I actually spend tons of time and I'm sure you do too. Like I think, you know. Uh, I spend tons of time talking to clients about meeting their dog's um, physical and mental enrichment needs because once those are met, we have such a better foundation to build upon with BMOD. And I think giving a dog a job does that. It meets those needs and, and in a lot of different a lot of different kinds of ways. So again, it doesn't have to be something as extreme as making them a conservation detection dog. It could be like doing some nose work or taking a sniffy walk or pl- mm-hmm. doing training or playing games with them or whatever. But if if that's missing, um, then a lot of the other pieces can't be put into place. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, I probably spoke too quickly there where what I kind of meant was not that you and I only do me mod. <laughs> oh, I knew what you meant. <laughs> uh, but, but more that um, in my experience, and I, of course, I have only worked at so many places and I've only seen so many things, but um, generally the conservation dog organizations that are working with these challenging dogs, they're not doing much targeted B mod mm-hmm. behavior modification. Um yeah, no, and I think it's a really good point because obviously when the dogs are in the shelter and they're going kennel crazy or whatever, um, it seems pretty inherently obvious that if we're dealing with those sorts of problems, when we get them out into um, just any home <laughs> is probably better than that, probably. probably. Um, and especially when we're, we're dealing with an experienced handler who's exercising the dogs and training them, that alone is going to help a lot of issues just kind of melt away especially over those first couple weeks Mm -hmm. um i think if things haven't gone away in those first couple weeks then we're looking at a situation where we're going to need more like training or lifelong management or something like that and then you know thinking on the the pre-shelter side of things as well or the the uh, maybe the dog is going directly from a private rehome into a conservation dog role um a lot of the cases that i remember back from the shelter um these dogs So I'm thinking of a particular pointer. We'll use him as an example. Um, 
he was like nine months old when he started driving his family nuts <laughs> um he was a working german shorthead pointer sort of thing um really kind of frantic behaviors lots of digging um lots of destroying stuff barking pacing you know the whole nine yards really obnoxious dog really difficult to live with from the from the sound of it and what they started doing was this dog's it, they entered this death spiral that I feel like I see a lot in my intake forms where <laughs> because the dog is such a pain, the dog's world gets smaller and they yes. interact with it less. And, <laughs> you know, oh. I, I believe this particular dog was pretty much living in the laundry room oh. before they finally gave up and brought him to the shelter. And he was one of those cases he, where, like, I mean, thank God they did bring him to the shelter because we were able to get him out into another home. I believe he actually got adopted by someone who wanted to get in a competitive canacross. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, he, he got, he was a lucky guy. Um, and he, you know, he was difficult. It still took a long time post-adoption for those things to get better. But again, what we really, what I remember seeing a lot from the shelter side of things is kind of as you talk to the, the relinquishers or read the forms, it's like, oh God, what you were doing to maintain your own sanity which I totally empathize with, really was the exact thing that was making this problem worse and worse. And you're just digging this hole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have I have had many clients like that where like the dog's world just keeps getting smaller because they don't know how to make it bigger. And the smaller it gets, the worse the behavior issues yeah. get. It, it's just this horrible, yeah, f endless cycle of, yeah. Um, yeah, when, the other thing I was going to say is I think that, um, you know, homes where the dog's behavioral needs aren't being met and or in the shelter where usually their behavioral needs aren't being met can certainly lead to like a learned helplessness suppression mm -hmm. type situation where the dog is just like okay nothing i do has any effect on what happens to me or what goes on around me um and i give up and that's stressful and it can cause a lot of anxiety and it can cause a lot of um you know destructive behaviors um and i think that giving the dog putting the dog in any kind of situation where they have a clear understanding of how their behavior affects their outcome is going to be an immediate Im improvement in their welfare all around mm -hmm. so you know taking a dog from a situation where um you know they try to get their needs met through behavior and it just never kind of happens to a place where that can happen um where they have a job that has a, a predictable outcome um that alone is just amazing for a lot of dogs and it can really help re if not resolve then then certainly help diminish a lot of issues re related to anxiety stress um those sorts of things that that are caused by the fact that the dog just doesn't feel like they have any control over anything and i mean we see it a lot in pet dogs of mm -hmm. course because you know it's just like susan's susan friedman says our behavior is designed to operate on the world around us right and get us outcomes and when that doesn't happen it's frustrating and scary and stressful and dogs experience all those things. So you, you look like you want to say something. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking about, you know, uh, I think this might be a slight pivot into again, that environment change where, mm -hmm. you know, one of the other things that I'm thinking about is not just the fact that, you know, as owners get desperate mm -hmm. <laughs> and are circling towards relinquishing the dog, um, the dog's world gets smaller and the enrich the very exercise and enrichment that the dog needs gets harder and harder to provide. But the other thing is just, I think it's hard to 
overemphasize the value of being in a dog savvy home for some of these dogs um you know i'm thinking about when we were first introducing niffler to your son fox oh yeah um <laughs> and niffler's lovely he oh, yeah. really is but it's a lot of coaching to keep Fox from waving his toys around or flapping his sweatshirt in a way that gets <laughs> Niffler to, Niffler gets excited, he jumps up and nips, and when Fox is running around, Niffler jumps around and nips, and I, I can watch Niffler and Fox interacting and be like, oh my god. I could see how if Niffler was raised in a home with a kid and was constantly learning from a kid, Niffler's behavior could really deteriorate mm -hmm. and he could be a much much more challenging dog simply because of that and you know just getting Niffler and, and like uh, you could you could handle him because you're a trainer and your your kid is great <laughs> um but there are so many things where it's like oh like we just need the dog to get out of this environment and you know it's not that Niffler can't be around kids but especially while he's young he can't be learning how to interact with humans from kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, babies shouldn't be teaching other babies, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And because I could really, and even, you know, I see this sometimes, especially back when um, I used to do more puppy class sort of stuff, mm -hmm. um, or I would do puppy sitting. I would get puppies into my home and potty training would evaporate, nipping would evaporate, all of these things. And I would try to explain to the clients what, I was doing and it's so hard without being there in person this is uh, with journey dog training I ro work remotely a lot where it's like oh it's it's literally I think this is where sometimes people think that they've got like calm assertive energy or something <laughs> you know all that yes. shit um <laughs> is because it's like oh it's not that I've got calm assertive energy but when I'm handling a puppy especially a really mouthy puppy or a teenager or an adult or whatever it is my hands are really still I'm interacting with them in this very specific way body language wise that I think again is hard to overemphasize with an experienced handler sometimes just getting them in and interacting with the right person to teach them manners mm -hmm. it, it's not that I'm doing like a specific training protocol or there's a magic pattern game that mm -hmm. I pull out mm -hmm. to deal with nipping it's uh, which and I think nipping and like jumping up and biting is one of the big problems that we see with a lot of these dogs mm -hmm. um and that one is one that again in particular like <laughs> having a really experienced handler is really really helpful mm -hmm. yeah absolutely because I think you can behave in a way that feeds into the problem and gets the dog more amped and you know kind of causes them to be more reactive or you can behave in a way that sort of stems the bleeding and opens up some opportunities for the dog to offer other behaviors that can be selected for. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a skill that you have to learn how to do. Yeah. And I would say the average pet owner probably not not super savvy at, or practiced yeah. at that skill um, unless even, they make it a point to. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. And even, even potentially shelter workers because sure, yeah. I know one of the things, you know, I talk about this with shelter workers all, all the time is shelter workers I'm going to say we, because I still count myself as a shelter worker. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm currently working part-time at Humane Society Boulder Valley. Um, uh, we're really good with fearful dogs. Okay. We're great at fearful dogs. Mm -hmm. That's our bread and butter, baby. <laughs> but, but these really high arousal dogs, the sorts of dogs that end up getting referred out for this sort of work... A lot of shelter workers, you, you don't see them as often. They're difficult. Uh, again, the shelter environment particularly makes them worse. So unless you're on the behavior team and or you're at a high volume shelter, even our shelter workers who are extremely skilled handlers may not be as used to handling 
these really, really intense working dog types. Mm -hmm. Um, I know Working Dogs for Conservation has talked about this previously publicly. They they say that about one in a thousand dogs has what it takes to do this line of work. So again, unless you're at a really high volume shelter, Mm -hmm. um, there's a good chance you're not going to see this sort of dog very often. And even, I guess even if you are at a high volume shelter, it's still not going to be daily, mm-hmm. probably. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that plays into that is the dogs that we're sort of singling out as dogs that would be candidates for this kind of work are the ones with those behaviors that we kind of put under the umbrella of overstem. Mm-hmm. And it's characterized by that sort of frantic need for interaction or affiliation, that sort of frantic engagement with the environment. So they're the ones, like I can picture this dog in my mind, right? Like you walk by the kennel and it's jumping to the top of the door, right? <laughs> like this dog has, you know, like <laughs> can get four or five feet into the air and bounce off the top of the kennel and do a backflip and then be back at it, in ha- right? Uh, yeah. And like when you think about, you know, a lot of shelter workers are volunteers mm-hmm. or a lot of them are not necessarily behavior savvy either because they care about animals, but they're not necessarily behavior savvy. Well, and, uh, <laughs> we'll get on our high horse about pay here. Most of them are really early <laughs> career a lot of them are young yeah and they're chronically underpaid and overworked (laughs) right and so so when they're like do i want to put my body in front in the line of fire for this dog that's gonna you know jump up and punch me in the face or grab my shirt and tug or Mm -hmm. you know launch off my stomach like (sighs) that's like when you're standing outside of a kennel with a dog like that it's like oh my god (laughs) like (laughs) as opposed to the fearful dogs where it's like oh that little guy is shoved into the back corner of his kennel and i'm gonna go in and sit and throw treats at him and he's not even gonna look at me like obviously just from a personal safety and comfort standpoint (laughs) one is much easier to work with than the other and so I think that's you know and that it's it's that same exact spiral though Mm -hmm. because like people pass up working with those dogs because it's just so intense and then the dog gets less interaction and then they get their behaviors get more desperate and then they get even less interaction so it's that same spiral that you were talking about a minute ago yeah and i know i've like the worst cases i've seen and now we're just going on a shelter rent but hopefully <laughs> it's fine it's fine um it's our podcast we do what we want <laughs> yeah <laughs> um i'm gonna refrain from getting more aggressive than that right now um but uh you know, especially if you've got a dog who needs heartworm treatment or when they jump up and grab at your sleeve, they break skin and then go on a legally mandated rabies quarantine. Mm. Like both of those cases I've mm-hmm. seen, um, we were just talking about, about a dog at the Humane Society Boulder Valley that is, uh, they call him Trainiacs at the Humane yeah. Society Boulder Valley, which it's I love. Yeah. Um, he needs to undergo heartworm treatment. Oof. And that is a major reduction in activity for this dog weeks Weeks. yeah and play groups have been the most successful thing for this dog in maintaining his behavior in the shelter um so hopefully it works out for him yeah oh it's really freaky um but you know and i think kind of circling back to that a lot of these like troublesome behaviors that may cause a dog to be relinquished to the shelter um or returned to the shelter over and over these frequent flyer sorts of dogs it might be things that your average conservation dog handler or organization just doesn't care about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not necessarily talking about these, like, bigger emotional issues where, again, you might want to call in a vet behaviorist or a certified dog behavior consultant, but things like 
dumpster diving, you know, digging in the trash, pulling on leash, jumping on guests, Mm -hmm. barking, Mm -hmm. not being potty trained. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, those are things that are really hard for like your average home. But yeah, like for someone like, like if if I had a good conservation dog candidate come my way Mm -hmm. and they were like, all right, he digs on the trash, he pulls on leash, he jumps on guests, he barks at cars. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, great. He sounds (laughs) perfect. That's about as easy as it's going to (laughs) get. Um, you know, unless like what I did with Niffler, which is where I just went with a puppy. And then, you know, we've talked about the the downsides of puppyhood as well. (laughs) You know, I mean, Barley, (laughs) Barley is the most he's the worst dumpster diver I have ever encountered in my entire life. Um, He's a scavenger. He's part (laughs) raccoon. (laughs) Um, And he he didn't, he pulled on leash pretty badly when I first got him. Um, He barked at some amount of people. He had some kind of stranger danger stuff. Most of it was around weird people in his book. You know, people on crutches, how dare they? (laughs) People wearing big hats, people with trekking poles, that sort of stuff. But, you know, again, so even Barley, who I think of as like a perfect conservation dog and about as easy as it's going to get, I could still see a world in which he was returned to the shelter. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, especially if he had kind of ended up in the wrong home that didn't manage to meet his needs, which are hard to meet. He's, I've been talking about this a lot lately. He is not a dog that benefits from a yard. You have to be there to exercise him. Mm -hmm. You know, the song from the little mermaid, they're like, I want to be where the people are. (laughs) That is Barley. Like you put him in the yard and he will just sit at the door and bark to be let in. So even though he's ridiculously high energy, that doesn't help, which again is another challenge for some of these dogs. And then Niffler self entertains really well, (laughs) especially with chickens chickens and squirrels. <laughs> but that might not be a behavior that you necessarily want him to practice depending on the home. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, there's just sort of a little random thought that, uh, you know, about, you say about Barley, like putting him in the yard isn't enough. And it's funny how many people say, like, count that as exercise for their dog. They'll be like, well, he gets time in the yard every day. He gets three, four hours in the yard. And it's like, well, but what is your dog doing in the yard? Like, because right. my dogs and mine are, well, I don't have Nico any longer. He lo- he left me in November, unfortunately, but he was this way. And so is Zip, my Border Collie mix, where, like, they'll do a couple laps around and kind of sniff their usual sniff spots in the yard. And they'll watch if somebody's going by the front or whatever. But, like, then after that they kind of just mosey like they mosey around or they lay in the sun or whatever being in the yard is not exercise for them and i think that a lot of people default to like oh but it's the yard like they go out there and they run around and that is not exercise for a lot of dogs and so they're they're missing out on that piece that they really desperately need yeah barley was actually relinquished with a note that said he needed to go home with a yard oh yeah yeah the the note from his person (laughs) now he lives in a van Uh, yeah he lives in a van he does not have a yard (laughs) yeah he's great um well and also i mean again we're we're really diving into our trainer hats here but that's okay um the the other thing that i think about when people are like oh my gosh this dog needs a yard or like well he gets time in the yard it's like okay your dog is probably either lying in the sun and enjoying Mm -hmm. themselves and being delightful at the yard or they're self-entertaining. By barking at people. <laughs> yeah. Like, think about the hobbies that a dog can have in a yard. Right. And then put put them in the column of things you want your dog to do and things you don't want your dog to do. And almost all of the things that would exercise your dog in the yard, in the yard are not things that you and your neighbors would like your dog to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unless... I actually... I did have a... I had a foster dog 
who this stressed me out because I don't think it was good for her, but it wasn't necessarily a bad thing as she did exercise and it didn't bother the neighbors. She ran laps. Hmm. I mean, it was like, it was like a tiger at a zoo. Like she killed the grass in like under a month. And like this, it was like a fixed pattern. German Shepherd, she was just, she ran her perimeter Hmm. all the the time. And it was nice because she was ridiculously dog reactive. Mm. So at least she was getting, I mean, she treated the yard like a treadmill. Mm. Again, I didn't love it. Mm-hmm. Um, she was my first foster dog and I was way underqualified for this talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, okay, so I think, you know, we've talked about how, like, some of these problem behaviors, like the dumpster diving, the leash pulling, the jumping, the barking, probably just not going to be an issue for your average working dog home. Um, but then, you know, as we've talked about a little bit, I just kind of want to organize our thoughts in my experience generally speaking i can't speak for all organizations here's what's happening when we've got a dog who quote-unquote has issues and then those issues are resolving once they get into this job first off is there's a reduction in triggers which reduces the dog's overall stress levels it lowers their ability to practice these unwanted behaviors because they're not practicing barking at people all day every day or whatever it is and fewer opportunities for mistakes especially if we've got um if the behavior that is triggered is something potentially dangerous so you know just not seeing kids means that the dog can't bite kids (laughs) Mm -hmm. so we've got a reduction in triggers um because we're out of the shelter or the stressful home environment and a lot of times our conservation dogs are um getting significant time away from city life. Um, This isn't the case for all of them. Uh, Most of our conservation dog handlers who aren't with a big organization, our dogs are our house pets. So it doesn't mean that they, you know, they don't necessarily get to go out and live on 40, 50 acres in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. But some of them do, you know, rogue detection and working dogs for conservation both have these big facilities where, and they, those are the two organizations, the two big names that are known for taking in dogs with behavior issues. And they both do have the capacity to get those dogs out of city life, period, Mm -hmm. which is huge. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've got the reduction in triggers. Next up, we've got this careful management from skilled handlers. Um, So the dogs may be on a crate and rotate schedule. They may be, um, in some extreme cases, they may even be more of like an indoor, outdoor, or kennel dog sort of setup which some of us may not like we've talked about outdoor dogs before on a hot takes episode i think that we did yeah um i would say an indoor outdoor kennel dog life for a working dog is better than being in a shelter and if for most dogs probably better than euthanasia um uh so we've also got leash skills so we've got handlers who may be really good at defensive leash handling they're comfortable managing the dog in these environments um And then the next biggest thing, and I think this is the one that we all think of, is that increased exercise and enrichment, which, again, a lot of our arousal and frustration type behaviors can more or less stem from that alone. So just treating that. Um, But then the the flip side, and this is one of the things, this is part of the reason we've got this podcast, um, is that some conservation detection dog organizations don't really rely on the like the up-to-date dog behavior and training information the way that the listeners of canine conversations are used to hearing about um and i think most of our listeners have been with us since ursa and i were here (laughs) consistently together um so i think this leads to some heavy utilization of management to just avoid problematic behaviors um because we're not doing as much behavior modification and that could be because the handlers and the trainers don't know how to implement the bmod or because they're implement so they don't try um and that's 
a choice. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to say it's good or bad. It really depends on the welfare situation at hand and the the risk of a slip up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've also firsthand seen some poorly implemented behavior modification backfire to create additional stress, anxiety, or lashing out behaviors, particularly if we're involving punishment. Um, <laughs> so I don't want to wade too deep into that those waters, but maybe we can talk generically about what I just brought up there, Ursa. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, and and so, you know, what you've been, sort of the, the points that you've been making really mirror how we work with dogs in a private setting, right? So management enrichment, BMOD. Um, and, you know, in terms of the utilization of, of training methods, you know, I think it, like we said earlier, it just really depends on, is it an issue that needs to be addressed? Um, and if so, I think it is really important that it's addressed with modern methods, because again, we're looking at, you know, we, we want to always strive to give the dogs that we are working with and living with um, a way for their for them to use their behavior to get certain outcomes, and you know it kind of makes me think of um, uh, Ken Ramirez. Everything makes me think about Ken Ramirez, right? Like <laughs> there's always a Ken Ramirez point that can be made. Um, but he uh, talked once at a lecture that I attended of his about how he so he was doing this work with um, police dog trainers across the country, and um, he was working with a specific group of um dogs and he taught these handlers how to teach their dogs to give a no i don't want to do that signal right like a refusal cue Mm. and it actually increased the um the efficacy and the accuracy of the dog's work so it wasn't more likely to result in a dog saying no i don't want to work but it was likely to result in them wanting to work because they had a choice um right (laughs) and i'm paraphrasing i'm grossly paraphrasing here like i am this is the very very abridged version and i'm sure ken has some um literature out there or a lecture out there on the specifics but point being like it's as the handler of a working dog it's really important to be um up, up and and you know to be um educated on them these more modern concepts Mm -hmm. and more advanced training concepts because you don't you have an advanced relationship with a working dog right Mm -hmm. this isn't just like you know my dog zip she's couch potato Mm -hmm. and like she kind of gets to do what she wants right and that's Mm -hmm. always been our relationship um And I think we have a really good one. And I think that we use training to communicate, but like, I'm not asking her to do a job and I'm not staking my career on how well she does her job. Mm -hmm. And if, if that were the case, you know, obviously that's a much more complex relationship than one that I have with a pet. And so to me, that means that you need to be really well versed in these more advanced concepts and in how to help, um, you know, give dogs agency in their training and how to understand their body language and their signals and the communication that they're giving back to you. And it really has to be a very sophisticated two-way street. So if you're just relying on sort of more traditional, um, you know, I tell the dog what to do and they do it or else, like that's, I don't see that as like maximizing that working relationship for either partner. Yeah. Totally. No, I think that's a good point. And I think, you know, when we're talking about, and and this is the same thing I talk about with my clients at Journey Dog Training, if we're talking about a behavior issue and we're talking about the roots that we could take 
to um, mitigate it, you know, the two biggest questions I've got if we're talking about moving past management Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the things we've already talked about and into more of like a concentrated behavior modification plan, um, all caps, (laughs) Uh, it's, you know, on one hand, it's the risk of a slip up. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, again, so if we're talking about jumping up on people, hey, you know, you might just manage that. Mm-hmm. No biggie. Mm-hmm. You know, um, unless you've got a therapy dog who's going to be working with people with balance issues, yeah. you know, then it is a safety issue. So, like, of course, environment and context matters. Um, but if we're talking about a dog who has in the past injured other dogs in fights, we might not want to just rely on management. Uh, yeah. Um, again, you know, and I, I've talked about this in past roles that I've had. It's a PR issue as well. You know, it's not just Kayla and Barley out there and Barley has bitten another dog and now, you know, I have to deal with paying medical bills and all veterinary bills and whatever. Like, that's still a nightmare. But now it's Kayla from Canine Conservationists and her working demo dog who's bitten (laughs) someone like... You know, it's it's just that much worse mm-hmm. from a PR perspective, which obviously PR should not be your only concern. But <laughs> so, you know, on, on one hand, we've got our risk. And then on the other hand, it's welfare. You know, mm-hmm. so if we've got a dog who's living in a constant state or even a frequent state of anxiety or phobia or something, that's again where I would say, I don't know if management's enough here. Mm-hmm. You know, and with anxiety and phobias, we might just be thinking the meds route. Um, and I think there's a lot of concern about meds impacting the the dog's ability to work. Mm-hmm. Um, I have seen firsthand a variety of dogs on medication. And trust me, if medication reduced a dog's ability to work, 90% of the dogs that are in agility competitions would not be working because <laughs> they're all anxious border collies. Uh, on medication. <laughs> don't at me, border collie agility people. I love you so much. Border collies. <laughs> uh, but... Um, you know, like, <laughs> as someone who considers themselves a high-functioning human being and has been on SSRIs, they have not impacted my ability to work. And, you know, of course, that's a question for your vet. We're not vets. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. Oh, there's the mic. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, you know, one thing I think about in terms of, um, like, when to decide how to move from management to, to BMOD or, you know, more generally like how to deal with any given situation is I have a little metric in my head and probably a lot of people are really familiar with this and it's likelihood versus risk yeah. right so like if a behavior or or an outcome or situation is a low likelihood and a low risk not as worried about that as something that's a low likelihood but a high risk so not likely to happen but if it does it's going to be really bad Mm -hmm. or a high likelihood high risk right so that's kind of a metric that i always have in mind when i'm working with clients and their dogs in terms of like how much management i'm going to put in place and how much time and energy i want them to devote to the behavior modification process and you know when i'm working with clients i have to like I have to keep it simple and I have to get it to get to the point, right? Because we're not talking about, you know, a detection dog or a conservation dog handler that's really dedicated to this process and this is their life and their livelihood. We're talking about, with me at least, oftentimes a client that's like, just make my life easier. Like, just make this problem go away. And so, you know, it's sort of the old chestnut of like, if a client comes to me with, well, my dog gets in the trash, am I going to write up this plan and take weeks 
weeks or months for, to, to figure out how we can teach the dog not to get in the trash when they're not there without traumatizing the dog, without resorting to, to you know, aversives, et cetera, et cetera. Or am I going to go put your trash in the cabinet? Mm-hmm. Right? So <laughs> as someone who has tried desperately <laughs> to modify my dog's trash behavior, I tried for years. I've tried so many things. It's just so much easier to just keep. And well, now I live in a van, so I can't keep my trash away from my dog. So I just pick it up. Right. Right. <laughs> I, take, I mean, my trash can is smaller than your average um, bathroom trash can. So I also take out the trash almost every day. So that helps too. <laughs> that does Management. Yeah. But yeah. then like, but then there might be another situation where, you know, the, the person says, well, my dog is, you know, sketchy with strangers and shows some aggressive behaviors, behaviors towards strangers. Um, They've never lunged or bitten, but I really want them to be comfortable around strangers. And so, you know, management is a solution, but maybe they have people over every single day and they don't want their dog to be locked away. And that's when I say, okay, well, we're going to do BMOD. Mm-hmm. Or if the behavior, if the outcome of the behavior is really severe, we're obviously going to have a combination of really heavy management right. and really heavy BMOD because we don't want to put the dog in that situation. But if it's very likely that something might happen and they and we slip up and they are in that situation, we want to try to have a better outcome. We want to try to change the behavior so it's not as the risk isn't as severe. So I think that metric I feel like has served me fairly well in terms of how I approach, are we going to use manage, more management, more BMOD, or a combination of both? Or or sometimes just one or the other, obviously. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't think of... Off the top of my head, I can't think of an example of where I would use BMOG with no management, but <laughs> maybe they exist. <laughs> I'll think about that one, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's actually, it's a good point about um, the level of dedication. So while in a lot of cases, um, handlers of conservation detection dogs are extraordinarily dedicated to their dogs, we're also extraordinarily busy. Sure. Um, and I... Yeah, I think especially if you may only have a couple weeks or months out of the year where you're not in the field, so you therefore can kind of do these concentrated training programs. And if you're also trying to build up your dog's training on a new scent and also write grant proposals and blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, I think even though we are really dedicated, it doesn't necessarily mean that we've got that much more time. Um, and I think, you know, in general, it's also, it's it's okay to reach out for help. Um, you know, trying to find an outside expert and recognizing that, you know, potentially you're a biologist or ecologist um, who has really successfully trained up a conservation detection dog, but you're not a behavior consultant. Mm-hmm. Get help. Yeah. <laughs> um, I get help with my dogs all the time. <laughs> um, and I, I pick Ursa's brain all the time. <laughs> I have a, an entire Rolodex of people that I, I refer to, even though I do have this experience um, and that's on both the scent side and the um, BMOD side. Um, and I think, you know, in general, if if it's something that you feel like you're going to go ahead and start working on on your own, um, I'll link a couple books in the show notes that I would recommend starting out with. Um, but, you know, definitely go back and listen to our episode with Dr. Susan Friedman talking about the humane hierarchy and starting there because I think again, kind of in the working dog world, we're really steeped in this culture of the dog does the job or else the dog needs to do this job. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, things like e-collars are really, really common in the working dog world in general. And especially when we're dealing with behavior issues, not talking recall here, because that's not a fight I really 
Uh, we've, we've talked <laughs> we've talked about it so many times on this podcast and i think y'all know where i stand on it like it's 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 nuanced it's you know it's not the hill i'm gonna die on <laughs> um but for behavior issues it is a hill i would die on where if your dog is exhibiting reactivity or aggression or god forbid anxiety or phobias and you're trying to treat that with an e-collar that is a really big welfare issue and that is something that is a a very very concerning to me and i think that that is where again sometimes we as a field we may just manage really heavily and again depending on the issue that might not be the wrong choice or we reach for the tool that we're comfortable with and you know again ken has to i almost called him dr ramirez i just (laughs) i upgraded ken to a phd in my head um uh reverend dr ken um esquire uh, Esquire, yes um you know he's talked uh, i believe it's him has talked about how every time you're switching tools or switching methods you're going to feel a a drop in efficacy and i know i felt this when i was switching over to working with working dogs on the opposite end of the spectrum where i felt like i was so good at bmod and then all of a sudden i was trying to teach dogs scent work and i was like what the heck is happening what is going on i don't know how to do this um so i i empathize if the tool that you're comfortable with is not the tool for the job and that leaves you feeling stuck but again i think you know that's where getting help Mm -hmm. is is what needs to happen and you know reach out to me and ursa we'll we'll at least have some ideas for you and again i'll I'll link some books in the show note the big one that i'm thinking of that i think most working dog people should read is i can't remember which order it's in but it's fired up freaked out and frantic frantic fired up freaked out i can't frantic Fired up, freaked out, and frantic. Yeah, yeah I by was Laura, Laura Van Arendong Ba. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> Cannot say the last name. I actually just added that to a required reading list for my uh, interns uh, this morning, so it's on my mind. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the. I, I went through a phase right after I graduated college when I was realizing that I was going to be a trainer. It was one of like six books I read in a couple months. I read like that, Click to Calm, uh, Control Unleashed, all of those books. And that one, I think, was maybe the most approachable and practical for this line of work. I should probably go back and reread all of them, but that's the one that sticks in my mind. Hey, everyone, just dropping into this episode with an update on our Patreon. Um, So we still have all those same levels that we've talked about in the past. We've got the $3 a month doggy detector where you ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode, but you also get to join our monthly training video calls, which are great if you're considering getting into the field of conservation dog training or are already in it and want to take you and your dog to the next level. Um, We will record the calls and then we publish the video for patrons to view and ask questions about. So everyone in all time zone gets, gets to participate fully. At the $10 level, you get all of that, plus the ability to ask questions, give feedback, and submit videos of you and your dog training for those calls. Um, And we also, we don't care about your target owner. So if you're working on competitive scent work or explosives or narcotics or anything like that, come on and join. It's a ton of fun. Finally, canine conservationists at the highest level um, for $25 a month get a private 30-minute call with me each month, um, which is cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com. Um, so I also have a couple new updates. As of October this year, we are also going to be doing a monthly uh, learning club call. So aside from those video calls where every all of the patrons get to 
uh, go through dog training specific videos in these learning club calls, we will all watch the same webinar, read the same scientific paper, or otherwise kind of participate in the same new learning opportunity, and then get together once a month on video chat to talk about it. So that's going to be a really great way to expand your knowledge, not just in the scent training world and the dog handling world, but also learning more about ecology, conservation, odor dynamics, all those great things. It's real nerdy. It's awesome. So I also added some exciting new merch. So for our patrons, now once every quarter, you will get an exclusive um, bit of canine conservationist swag if you join at the highest level. So there's a mini print of Niffler that's just kind of a cute little postcard of Niffler. Um, you get a canine conservationist mug after three months. And then there are a couple different stickers and all of that just is kind of included in the cost of your Patreon. And again, all of that helps support this podcast. This podcast would not be possible without our members over on Patreon. So I do hope you go ahead and join us over on Patreon. Again, for as little as three bucks a month, you get all sorts of fun stuff at those higher levels. You do get more one-on-one attention and you get swag. But even if you've got three bucks a month, uh, we really appreciate it and would be thrilled to have you around. Now let's get back to the show. Anyway, I'm handing the mic back to Orkesta now. Oh, no, that's okay. I was just going to say, I think you make, you know, you made a really a point about a lot of the times people justify using severe tools by saying, like, well, the dog's life depends on it, right? Like, Or it's a severe problem. It's a so severe we problem. Need a severe we need a severe tool. tool. But, but, or, like, really, you know, in order for the dog's quality of life to be better or for to save the dog from euthanasia, we have to go resort to these, you know, drastic measures, which I, I don't agree with the, the validity of that statement to begin with. But I also think that it warrants looking at, like, if you're talking about using aversives to to address, to try to address a problem that is um, that is triggered by putting, purposefully putting a dog in a situation and asking them to do a job that they are maybe not yet or will ever be equipped to do, that's really problematic to me. Yeah. Because then we're not talking about a welfare issue. We're talking about, a well, but I really want my dog to do this. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm willing to do anything to get what I want out of this mm-hmm. dog. And for me, that is not, that does not fit into my standards for the relationship that I'm going to have with a dog. Yeah. I don't get to justify using whatever tools or means just to get what I want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's something to think about, you know, and I, and I think that it requires having a really honest conversation with yourself about like, is this what I want for the dog <laughs> or is this truly objectively what is, you know, what, like the outcome that I'm looking for, mm-hmm. is it what I want or is it what I want or is it what's best for the dog? And I run into this a lot as a parent. Oh, I bet. A lot as a parent. And it's yeah. really hard to separate what you want for your kid from what they want or need or what's best for their emotional development. Um, and, and so I think about it a lot because I'm constantly trying to pick apart my feelings when I have a reaction or when I have something I feel really strongly about my son doing or not doing. I'm constantly sort of trying to think like, is this just because of some preconceived notion or emotional attachment or whatever that I have? Or am I truly stepping back and objectively saying, like, I do think this is what's best for him. So, you know, just an example, like, maybe I really, I grew up riding horses and I loved it. And it was like, 
a huge part of my life and it had such a positive impact on me as a kid. And like, I would love for my son to learn how to ride horses. If he was like, no, I don't want to do it. I'm scared. I don't like it or whatever. Like, am I going to force him to do that? Because that's what I want. And I know that's not a complete analogy, but like the sentiment behind it is really similar. So what are we, the, the problem that we're looking to solve with aversives, is it because we want it or is it because objectively we think that that is the best way to get to the optimal um, welfare for our dog so yeah i think those are really so i just recorded an episode with sarah stremming and aaron jones about what we owe our working dogs and what they owe us and we spent like 90 minutes hashing all of this out and that episode i just checked it's going to come out two weeks after this one as long as my publishing schedule doesn't change um which it usually does but you know we'll see um so yeah i think those are all just such good points and you know i've talked about this in the past when i used an e-collar on barley for his prairie dog stuff um it was something i didn't like how it changed his search style. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the responses I was seeing from him and I didn't I don't think I would be comfortable asking him to work in that environment again because it was not it was no longer worth it to him. Mm-hmm. And while I love this field and our work is so important and this is where I get tripped up is when it's like oh, but if I ask my dog to push through this really hard thing or I do this thing that I don't like to my dog, mm-hmm. And we save an endangered species. Mm. Is it worth it? Mm-hmm. And that's those are the questions that I was uh, we were chewing over in this other episode. Um, and I, you know, again, it's the sort of thing where it's like, and we talked a little bit in the episode about the idea of like, um, you know, the the 9/11 response dogs. Mm-hmm. Those dogs went through hell <laughs> to go save people from hell, mm-hmm. like that to some degree it's you know i wouldn't have my dog ride on a helicopter for fun (laughs) i would ask my dog to ride on a helicopter for work Mm -hmm. um so you know there's just a ton of nuance here and i think we're gonna wrap up that that Mm -hmm. part of the conversation here because again we've got a whole other episode coming out on it but we do have a question from one of our patreons Mm -hmm. our our, our patrons from patreon um and this is from emma l and she wanted to hear us talk about reactivity towards people and how it's dealt with in the field um she said i've heard you talk about some positions may be better suited for reactive dogs like bat searches on windmill wind farms versus zebra muscle boat searches which makes sense um but does that severely limit the available work options and she's also just generally curious to know what it's like to have a a dog in a working capacity that has those types of behavior issues what are things to consider i think we've covered a lot of that Mm -hmm. um i i think it's funny she said this question is for ursa (laughs) but i i think i'm gonna have to answer it um so i have thoughts (laughs) yeah i'll 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 say my piece and then we'll let you have your thoughts um i think generally speaking a human reactive dog, you are going to be able to work in this field. It obviously, it depends massively. You know, is your dog a dog who, you know, with a bit of management can handle your average suburban street, um, but just can't do coffee shops? (laughs) Or is this a dog that is having a full-blown, you know, meltdown, barking, screaming, thrashing, taking minutes to recover from seeing humans at any distance? There's going to be a difference because that second dog, I would say, is not ready to do this line of work because there are going to be people around to some degree. If nothing else, you're going to be staying in hotels 
or campgrounds a lot of the time. And I think that is another that is a point where um, our conservation dogs with issues may actually struggle more than if they were in your typical home because there is no such thing as a routine. My dogs have stayed in hotels, trailers, we live in a van, um, we're constantly going cross country. So if those are the sorts of things that are going to stress your dog out and your dog can't handle... Crashing on friends' couches. Crashing on friends' couches. Barley <laughs> is currently helping Zip hold down the couch, prevent it from levitating. <laughs> They're doing great. Um, <clears throat> so again, it depends on kind of the, the specific parameters of your dog's reactivity. But generally speaking, I think most of the work in this field um, is pretty open to that. Um, the big exception is the zebra mussel work, which unfortunately is probably after wind farm work, one of the biggest employers in this field. But, um, you know, you've still got wind farms. Uh, you know, again, though, like where Barley and I or where Niffler and I were staying this last winter um, or this last summer, I keep saying winter. <laughs> um, we did not do a wind farm search in the winter. Um, that was it was really doable for him even if he and he actually was dealing with some stranger danger at the start of the summer he was a little human reactive um <clears throat> but barley who was staying with my friend rachel they were staying in an extended stay hotel that would you know shared a parking lot with a golden corral <laughs> <laughs> so even though the work was very socially distanced the the stay was not so you know i God, I know this is useless. It depends. It depends. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for another version of it depends, I would say the first thing to do, and and I think this mirrors a lot of the work that I do with you know the private sector with non-working dogs because I always have clients that come to me that like say, well, I want to take my dog camping or I want to take them to the crag or I want to take them to the dog park, but they have X issue. Can we still do it? And so it depends. <laughs> and the first thing you have to do is is qu quantify what do we mean when we see, say reactivity. So kind of like mm -hmm. you said, um, you know, what's the trigger? What's the context? What's the, what's the antecedent arrangement for the behavior? What is the behavior? Um, how risky is the behavior? And then, you know, once you have those things figured out, I think you have to think about how likely is the trigger the trigger situation to be encountered in the specific work that you want to do and what will happen if if that context comes up and then you know as with any training plan um you manage so that the dog doesn't get triggered you teach new skills and then you gradually ease them into those trigger situations with the scaffolding of those new skills so that they can learn a new alternate behavior so it's I mean, I think I tend to think of a lot of things in the ABC mm -hmm. antecedent behavior consequence, and it can be applied to this situation just by kind of working through all of those things. But one thing I always um, like to sort of caution my clients about is that I don't like to put dogs in let's see what happens situations. Yeah. Because if we're saying let's see what happens, what that means is that I don't know that my dog can be successful here. Mm -hmm. And so I would think like any any working arrangement that you're considering, you'll want to have experience with the trigger in the in the context that it might be presented during that work and make sure that your dog has some tools and skills to help them have an appropriate reaction mm -hmm. and i mean like i said that's all reactivity work that's that's i'm gonna say the same thing if we're teaching the dog to walk down the street and see a stranger across the street um and so it's really just taking those same basic training principles and applying them to this 
you know, possibly more complex or possibly less complex situation. Because you run into, you know, a dozen people out on the street if you walk down the block, but you might only run into one or two if you're out in the field working. Um, But you still want to be prepared. You want to prepare your dog and yourself for those situations so that um, they can over time learn to, um, you know, essentially be able to offer an appropriate behavior instead of whatever it was they were doing that was not appropriate. (laughs) Um, So I can't speak, you know, specifically to like the suitability of a dog like that for um, certain conservation tasks over others. But I think the general approach of, um, you know, treating reactivity and not putting dogs in situations where we know that they can't be successful and then, you know, kind of gradually working on helping them learn those skills. I think that applies no matter what. Yeah, I, 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 those are really, really good points. And, you know, one of the other questions that I may have, and this is obviously not the only consideration, but potentially, even though you may have to continue doing management, you may have to navigate some situations with this human reactive dog, there's a chance that working that dog is still a net positive to that dog's mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. You know, again, if we're comparing living in suburbia while you do your normal job, <laughs> versus staying in a hotel in suburbia and the dog getting to go to the wind farm every day and do work, the dog may prefer that. Um, It doesn't mean you won't have to do any management. It doesn't mean that you are off the hook for all reactivity related um, work in the future, but it may still be kind of a net positive for the dog's life. Um, And again, I've seen enough dogs with issues in this field really succeed that it does not seem like it's a big limiting factor. You know, I I wouldn't worry too much about it as long as the dog is still interested in and capable of doing the work. Because the reality is the dog is still, especially for something like human reactivity and dog reactivity as well, the dog is still going to be living in a world with humans and dogs. Mm -hmm. So the the likelihood of the trigger in this line of work is not worse than anywhere else, Uh, uh, which is a a little contrast to like prey drive. If you've got a dog who would love this line of work, but is really um, crazy about chasing everything, um, that is the sort of behavior issue that actually may be more manageable in a home environment. Mm -hmm. And that dog might do great as a disaster search and rescue dog, because you're not running into bunnies, (laughs) I would imagine, generally. but may not succeed in the conservation dog line of line of work. Um, and generally, you know, she also asks kind of generally curious to know what it's like to have a dog in a working capacity that has these types of behavior issues. So both of my dogs, um, Niffler, as I said, did deal with some stranger danger stuff kind of in his like early teenagerhood months, um, like six to nine months old or so. Um, but otherwise, my dogs haven't really dealt with that as much. Um, but I have fostered dogs and housed dogs back when I was at Working Dogs for Conservation who did have more more feelings, more issues, more concerns. And generally, I found that working them was the easy part. Living with them was the tough part. Um, because again, in the work environment, you're generally out in the middle of nowhere. You're already so completely focused on the dog and the dog is focused on the task that there were cases where I even expected a dog that I was working to have a reaction to something, but they were so focused on their work that they didn't. And then again, living with them, the hotel, (laughs) particularly hotels, those are really, really tough. Um, And the housing situation and the travel is still really tough. And that's actually something we didn't talk about either here or with Rogue. Um, 
and you know then there were a couple funny cases like i was shadowing um a dog uh handler team with working dogs for conservation and the dog got totally freaked out by this weird shaped bush hmm. you know it looked a little bit like a person <laughs> up from a up from a it was like up on a ridge and this dog and he like he, he got totally wigged out by it he was barking he was freaking out um and it took a long time to get him back into the frame of mind to work which i think is the big thing to consider as i i, I probably said the big thing to consider with 15 <laughs> different things but you know if the dog can only do the work if they're in this perfectly controlled environment that's not likely to happen so it's not just it, like we also need the dog to be able to recover and to be able to handle these triggers in the context of work so i think that's all for now <laughs> ursa do you have anything we've already gone we try to keep it at an hour sorry everyone yeah, no i don't think so i think we've covered pretty much everything so i mean you know with it <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> at least you know this little chunk that we wanted to talk about today <laughs> right yeah so of course thank you all so much for listening i hope you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set you can find show notes donate to canine conservationists find links to find ursa and join our patreon over at canineconservationists.org until next time patreon yet if you love this podcast and want to support it in the long term patreon is the way to go i spend hours per episode researching guests writing out questions recording interviews posting on patreon to engage with our patrons about all of those cleaning up the audio and putting together all of the promotional materials even with the help of volunteers this is an enormous task that takes up a ton of my time and right now i'm not paid for it for just $3 a month, you can support this show while also gaining access to our exclusive detection dog training video help calls, which happen once a month, our learning club calls, which are currently quarterly, but I'm hoping to move to monthly, and a lot more. You can join the fun over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or using the link in our show notes. You also may want to share this with anyone else you know who is interested in getting involved in the field of conservation detection dogs, because this is hands down the lowest cost way to get as much mentoring and assistance and joining a community of other professional and aspiring conservation detection dog handlers. And um, you're going to really enjoy it. See you there.